Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Yes, the wisdom of the Beatles by way of Stevie Wonder was put to the test. Not the ultimate test, but to a test over the weekend. I should say that um, as we were sort of planning this show, we started planning it kind of on Friday, I guess. We didn't really know what kind of show it was going to be because it really seemed possible at the time that the balloting would still be going right now or sometime around you know 11 or noon today, they'd have results. So, But over the weekend... It turned into, I think, more of a what comes next kind of show. Uh, but just to recap, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who seemed to have, if you go back a ways, a pretty clear path to the speakership uh, once the Republicans regained the House majority, suddenly didn't. Uh, and 20 or so, in fact, perhaps I should say 20 odd <laughs> extreme members of, of the Republican caucus began the process of blocking him, not giving him enough votes. Uh, it went on like that for quite a long time until in the early, early hours of Saturday morning. And Kat, we're going to play A1 right here. In the early hours of Saturday morning, we got this. Let me close with this. I may not know all of you, some of you are new, but I hope one thing is clear after this week. I never give up. Well, that's one possible interpretation. All right. Joining us now to help us understand, I should say in our second segment, uh, Yale historian Joanne Freeman is going to talk a little bit about how there really is nothing new under the sun. If you go back to the 19th century, all this stuff happened. Not all of it happened, but a lot of it happened. But that doesn't mean it's not alarming when it happens now. And then uh, at the end of the show today, it really was a moment for C-SPAN. We are going to talk to C-SPAN's director of editorial operations about everything that happened or as much as, as we can. But right now, just to kind of get a picture of where we are uh, after all of that craziness, uh, Aaron Rupart joins us, uh, independent journalist and publisher of the Public Notice Newsletter covering U.S. politics and media. Let me do some uh, on-air uh, SEO on that because uh, you might want to check it out uh, after this conversation. So what you want to do is go Google Public Notice Newsletter or Public Notice a substack or public notice, R-U-P-A-R, Rupar. Uh, otherwise, you're getting a lot of stuff about what a public notice is. Uh, so, um, first of all, Aaron Rupar, I've enjoyed your work for a long time and your presence on Twitter. Uh, great to be talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And thank you for being so thorough with your uh, plug there. That um, That's great advice, because if you Google public notice, yeah, you're not going to find it. But Include my name and you'll find it. There so you thank go. you. There you go. Yep. Yeah. And it's, we should say, this is kind of a, it's not just, uh, unlike a lot of newsletters, not just Aaron, there's uh, other people working on this as well. And some really interesting coverage of this. So let's maybe begin with this. We know 
from watching the process that the uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, on the road to the becoming the speaker and to placating this disgruntled group uh, of for the most part kind of extremist members of his own caucus made a lot of promises and a lot of concessions. We can talk about what some of them are, but my first question is, do we know all of them? Does, does the press or public know every concession that has been made? Are they all carved in stone somewhere that we can look at? We do not know all of them. We will know a lot more uh, later today when they vote on a rules package that will kind of formalize the structure of this Congress. Um, but there's even talk that there might have been some secret provisions that haven't been uh, publicly disclosed yet. So we don't know uh, what we do know. Um, just based on reporting and what uh, Republicans have said during media appearances, is that uh, the Freedom Caucus will get to determine one third of the composition of the Rules Committee, which is a very influential committee because it basically determines what legislation reaches the floor. So that will give them kind of a veto over the bills that are actually discussed on the floor. And then also the other big provision that got a lot of press over the weekend is this so-called motion to vacate the chair, which basically means that any one member now uh, can bring a motion that would effectively result in McCarthy being ousted if a majority of the House votes in favor of it. Um, and so that provision was actually that that was a longstanding rule of the House that Nancy Pelosi changed uh, when she was speaker for the most recent Congress. And there is some concern that, you know, that could lead to a lot of gridlock, a lot of grandstanding, a lot of votes uh, where McCarthy's job will be on the line, especially if he has the temerity to cooperate with Democrats at all or work on you know any sort of bipartisan initiatives. One of these far right Freedom Caucus members could then bring a motion to remove him. So those are the two big ones. We will know, like I said, a lot more when they get around to formally voting on the rules package, which is going to happen later today. And there's some question about whether it will pass because uh, you know, you still have a number of far right Republicans who did not vote for McCarthy. And, you know, we could be in for more rounds of voting on this rules package uh, because, you know, the, the narrowness of the last election really empowered the Freedom Caucus. Right. And we can circle back to some of this stuff, uh, uh, time permitting, but it also looks like one of the first things McCarthy will try to do is something that really is not the fruit of this long negotiation uh, process and this concession process, but was something McCarthy had already been talking about doing, and that was interfering with increased funding of the IRS. This has been kind of a, a grandstanded uh, issue uh, for quite some time, but it does appear that this will be the, I mean, once they get rules and stuff like that, this will be one of the first bills they do, right? Yes. Uh, Republicans are in agreement that that is the first thing in the House they are going to vote for is repealing funding for its almost 90,000 new IRS staffers. Um, you know, there's a certain irony here because James Comer, who is the incoming chair of the Oversight Committee, was on, uh, I believe it was Face the Nation yesterday, saying that if Democrats want people like Donald Trump to pay taxes, they need to change the tax code. Well, at the same time, he's obviously opposed to you know enforcing uh, the provisions of the tax code as they currently exist. So that's obviously more of a messaging bill because um, you know the Senate, obviously with Democratic control, is not going to be interested in taking that up. Nor will Biden sign anything like that into law. So the more concerning things in terms of what can happen in this Congress are you know surrounding the debt ceiling first and foremost, where Republicans have already signaled that they plan to use the debt ceiling as leverage to enact uh, cuts to spending, you know, whether that be of the social safety net or other domestic spending. And so, you know, they have power uh, because of the fact that you obviously need both chambers to adopt legislation of that sort to kind of throw wrenches in the gears 
and wreck things. But, you know, in terms of actual constructive priorities, you know, things like this uh, grandstanding over the IRS agents uh, aren't really going to go anywhere, but they'll make for good Fox News clips. Right. And I mean, we should say that the optics of this often differ pretty significant, significantly from the reality. You often see pictures of armed IRS agents. A lot of this is replacing uh, retirees or upgrading IT and stuff like that. I mean, this isn't really people coming to kick your door down and, you know, accuse you of using your beagle as a dependent or something. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it really, you know, it's become kind of this bugaboo on the right, this idea that Democrats are wanting to spend money on IRS agents that will then come and audit kind of middle class people. There's no evidence that that would be the product of this. Um, You know, it's just funding that's meant to close some of the loopholes and enforcing the existing tax laws. And, you know, we obviously have seen no shortage of examples of why more enforcement is needed just to get people and companies to pay their fair share who are exploiting loopholes and sometimes kind of uh, flouting the law in doing so. So, you know, again, it's it's a messaging bill, and that's going to be a lot of what Republicans are up to. Um, you know, of course, you can impeach officials just within the House. And so, you know, impeaching Mayorkas uh, seems to be a big priority. The DHS secretary, uh, Byron Donalds, who was one of the uh, breakout stars, so to speak, of the chaos in the House last week when he emerged for a short period of time as a possible speaker candidate, was actually on Fox News yesterday talking about how, you know, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that Republicans will actually impeach Biden. Um, And so, you know, that will, again, kind of make for good uh, TV, make for a lot of interesting Fox News appearances. But, you know, of course, the Senate isn't going to convict Biden, especially because it doesn't seem like there really is any basis at this point for impeaching him. But, you know, that's one of the ways I think that Republicans try to normalize some of the conduct that we saw under President Trump, uh, who, of course, was impeached twice. And since he was impeached twice, you know, it's kind of a tit for tat where uh, they're going to try and and punish Biden in the same way. So, Aaron, um, let's go back to the debt ceiling for a second. I mean, the process of last week was compared by somebody, I forget who, to two sides playing uh, chicken, having ripped off the steering wheels of both cars. You know, but the debt ceiling is a little bit of a game of chicken on a semi-regular basis. Uh, And the reason that it's especially a scary game of chicken, obviously, is that the anticipated ripple effect through the economy, uh, if in fact the government doesn't have the money to function, uh, is is potentially profound. And I think there's sort of been this kind of latent idea, well, they wouldn't let it go that far. Nobody would let it go that far. But it does appear with monkeys in charge of the monkey house, like we might have a different situation with that whole very scary question. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth remembering that the last time we came close to uh, not getting a debt limit increase back in 2011, it led to a downgrade of government debt, uh, which ended up costing taxpayers over a billion dollars and caused the Dow Jones to plunge 2000 points. So there were some real negative consequences of that. And yeah, I mean, there is kind of this expectation that, oh, Republicans would never do this because it would wreck the economy and that would be really bad for everyone. But I think, you know, these games of political brinksmanship, sometimes the logic is a little bit different on that side where, you know, maybe they think that um, they can really use that to attack Biden heading into 2024 and, you know, sort of pillory him for mismanaging the economy and sort of, you know, open the the gates to someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis to beat him. And so, um, you know, even look at the dysfunction that we saw last week in the election of a speaker. You know, there's a lot of punditry about how this really reflected the dysfunction of the Republican caucus. And I think that is true. But I also think, you know, we're so far out from an election at this point, and voters tend to have pretty short memories that I'm not really convinced that we'll have any sort of electoral backlash come November of next year. But certainly, yes, the debt ceiling 
Um, you know, Republicans have been very uh, direct and they've stated very clearly that they are going to use that as leverage to enact spending cuts. And so uh, there are some procedural ways that you can get around um, the obstruction of Republicans. If there are even just a few of them who are willing to work with Democrats on a debt, sim- uh, debt uh, limit increase, it only takes six to work with Democrats to do that, even if leadership uh, blocks that or wants to prevent a vote from occurring. So, you know, we'll have to see what happens. And it's still unclear at this point when that will become a, you know, a big topic when that when that limit will be approached. It's going to be sometime this year, uh, but it's many months down the line. So a lot is going to happen between now and then. But, you know, both uh, Republicans have been very clear that they plan to force a showdown on that. And that's going to be one of the first big flashpoints we have in this new Congress. Right. And what also kind of seemed to emerge over the weekend was, so, well, what's, if you would threaten uh, a problem with the debt ceiling, what are you trying to get in return? Uh, and it's spending cuts of some kind. And, and at least one person, one rep over the re- over the weekend said, we're probably talking about entitlements at some point. Once again, mm-hmm. feels like, although this was a Paul Ryan idea, so it's not like a crazy town idea. It is kind of a third rail, I think, politically, the idea that you start messing with Medicare and Social Security. Yeah. And, you know, President Biden has been very clear that he is not going to sign any cuts for Social Security or Medicare into law. And so that is, you know, it's kind of the, you know, the immovable force and the uh, the the rock and the immovable force, right? I, I can't remember the exact turn of phrase off the top of my head, but, you know, both sides have been very clear that they're not going to budge on this. And so, uh, you know, something will have to give eventually. Um, obviously, both sides at this point don't really have any incentive to cave or to kind of show weakness on this. Uh, but, you know, this is one of the consequences of giving Republicans control of the House. Um, you know, they're, they're, we, during the campaign season, we heard a lot about inflation and crime, things like that. And, you know, that pivoted very quickly once the election ended to talk of cutting entitlements, which obviously there was some talk of that. And even McCarthy, you know, in an interview he did before the election, acknowledged that the debt limit would be used as leverage. But, you know, it wasn't something that Republicans wanted to talk about for obvious reasons, because it's very unpopular but it's popular with their base. And, you know, those are the people that they're trying to please right now. So, yeah, I wish I could tell you how, how it's going to play out. <laughs> but um, I, I will again say that Biden has been very, very clear that he's not he's not planning to sign anything that would cut the safety net into law. Right. Just for your own records, it's irresistible force versus immovable object. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. And it's actually in the lyrics of a Johnny Mercer tune called Something's Got to Give, a term you just used. So you have there total control of this trope, actually. I, uh, it, was, it was swirling around in my brain somewhere. Yeah, I just couldn't uh, recall it you know, when I needed to on the fly there. So. Wheedle, you're my age. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I just wanted to just observe in passing that, you know, right now the Fed is essentially trying to perform microsurgery uh, on inflation and disinflation without, you know, uh, triggering another crisis and and all of this messing around that they're talking about doing, particularly with the debt ceiling, there's like throwing a stick of dynamite into the operating theater. I mean, we've already got a problem uh, that's got to be handled very well. You can't, you know, if you bring that kind of chaos to it, it seems like it'd be a recipe for e- even more concern. Hey, I want to talk to you also about another thing that you've been writing about. Uh, you were also quoted about it by Heather Cox Richardson in her Substack uh, newsletter, uh, and, and that is the role of former President Trump in all of this. Ultimately, Ultimately, it seemed as though one of the things, one of the thumbs that got put on the scale that kind of helped McCarthy was Trump getting involved in his behalf. Uh, and, and maybe you could just say a little bit about that. First of all, I mean, how, how important do we think Trump was in terms of tilting a few of these people over into the McCarthy column? 
You know, that's a really debatable, uh, it's really debatable how effective he was because he, I believe it was last Wednesday morning, uh, you know, posted on Truth Social his clearest yet endorsement of McCarthy. And in the day that followed and then Thursday, it did not move a single vote ultimately. And so uh, that was what I wrote about on Friday was that, you know, Trump expended some political capital on McCarthy's behalf and it didn't seem to really move anyone, which you know, we tend to think of Trump as this huge kingmaker in the Republican Party, which is true and has been true, of course, in primaries. But that was, you know, one of our first real concrete indicators that perhaps his status in that regard was eroding a little bit. And then the other thing which I wrote about in public notice on Friday was the fact that Trump's nomination for speaker, which was uh, offered by Matt Gates on Thursday, became a punchline. It was actually something that members were laughing about when it was read on the House floor that he only received a single vote <laughs> for speaker, which I found to be kind of notable because, of course, there had been many months of speculation that Trump could be kind of this dark horse candidate for speaker. And then there it was right in front of Republicans when they couldn't find an alternative to McCarthy and no one really seemed particularly interested. So then, of course, you know, Friday night into Saturday, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene posted a photo of herself, you know, a photo of her phone, and she was on the phone with Trump. And, you know, apparently Trump was trying to whip some of these members to vote on McCarthy's behalf. And ultimately, you know, McCarthy had enough support to get over the finish line. But, you know, I'm not really sure if Trump, uh, certainly on Truth Social, he's been trying to take credit for that. But, you know, I think more likely it kind of got to a point where there was no other viable alternative. And I do think that as this dragged out day after day after day, it was doing some political damage to Republicans. So I don't know if I credit the fact that the impasse was broken to Trump. Um but, you know, the one of the ironies, again, is that, you know, Trump was out there campaigning for a lot of these really far right candidates who weren't viable in general election contests. And one of the products of that was that this far fringe of the party uh, was empowered. And you would have thought someone like Matt Gates, you know, would be kind of beholden to Trump. Matt Gates has been a huge Trump person, but yet it took days for him to kind of heed Trump's endorsement. And even then he only voted present for McCarthy. He didn't actually vote for him. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of moving parts there. I'm not sure how much credit Trump should get. But, you know, I will again note that in previous eras, had he come out forcefully for a House speaker candidate like he did for McCarthy, you would have expected Republicans to kind of fall in line very quickly. And it took well over 48 hours, almost 72 hours before, you know, McCarthy was finally elected after that. Right. I love, by the way, uh, the fact that on Marjorie Taylor Greene's phone, Trump is DT in her address book. You're, by the way, you're AR on my phone, and everyone knows oh. if they see it. You're talking to Rupar, aren't you? you know, there you but, go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, and that, that was when, just in passing, that was one of the things I thought was really funny about this is that Marjorie Taylor Greene almost ended up being like a moderate in all of this <laughs> because she was sticking with McCarthy from day one, where Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, uh, you know, some of these people who have kind of been categorized with her. Uh, were the rebels who, you know, were voting for these other candidates. And so, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene emerged from this almost looking like kind of a rational mainstream Republican in comparison with some of her colleagues. Right. No, absolutely. When when Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the cooler heads, uh, something has gone drastically wrong. Well, let me just ask you one last question. And this is works a little bit off of Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter. And, and there's no real answer to this question, but it's worth raising. And that is, if you have this situation where, you know, these 20 or so um, reps who really don't represent much of mainstream politics and are kind of associated with a style, a Trumpian style of politics that has been very unsuccessful in three consecutive election cycles, a presidential cycle sandwiched between two midterms. You know, you start to wonder, what's their overall plan? And, and is it a plan that includes tr continuing to try to shrink the electorate? Because, you know, if you're, it seems as though they're going to be doing a lot of stuff that's extreme. 
the the process that's been set up and all the giveaways by McCarthy seems to point a to gridlock and chaos and b to m- probably a chance for some of these more extreme members to get their stuff uh, out in front of the public, if not passed. And I just sort of wonder about that. I wonder how you maintain power and do that at the same time. And it seems like one of your only options is maybe to have fewer people vote. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. Um, I think there's something to that. I also think there's something to this idea that with them controlling one chamber, um, you know, they can really cause chaos, cause gridlock, cause problems, and then try to use that against Biden and Democrats in 2024. Um, you know, someone like Bobert, who barely won uh, this past November, you know, this raised her national profile hugely. She was on MSNBC, which would have been unthinkable. You know, even a week earlier, she was on Fox numerous times. And so, you know, for someone like her, I wonder if the calculation is a little more straightforward, where it just raises her profile and maybe that can help her, you know, stay in that seat uh, past this term. But, you know, I also think based on what we've seen from Republicans in the Trump era, you know, my read of the situation is that they want to cause problems. They want to cause chaos because they view that as being to their political benefit, you know, when uh, the majority, both Senate and the White House are controlled by Democrats heading into a presidential cycle, that they can kind of weaponize that chaos and dysfunction while pleasing their base, you know, many of whom a lot of the Republican base doesn't want government to be functional. That's kind of the whole point is wrecking things. Um, but then, you know, again, I think that the, the read of it that I have is that that will, you know, cause problems that they can use to their benefit when they're hitting the campaign trail, both for their own seats and then for the presidency as well in 2024. All right. We're going to stop there. We've been talking to Aaron Rupar, independent journalist and publisher of Public Notice Newsletter. As I said, you have to Google Public Notice Newsletter or Public Notice Substack or something like that. So you can get uh, their coverage of U.S. politics and media. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to look a little bit at the history of this and how the history bleeds into the present and the past is prologue and all that kind of stuff. And what's in your account? And you can call me crazy, but if that's sad, you can call me the mayor of crazy town. I'm 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 the mayor of crazy town. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
All right. Oh, now we're going to talk to one of our favorite guests uh, from the past. Joanne Freeman uh, is the class of 1954 professor of history and American studies at Yale University. That should not be understood as her graduating year uh, and the co-host of the American History and Politics podcast now and then. Her most recent book is The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to a Civil War. So first of all, welcome back to our show, Joanne Freeman. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be back. So um, let's start I mean, I, I think part of the thrust of this segment is there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> a lot of things that seem like they never could have happened before, which is what we say all the time, actually have happened before. You just have to go back to the 19th century for, for a lot of it. So maybe just start with the simple question of a speaker battle. A speaker battle is not a new thing. We're just not used to seeing it recently, right? Right. Although it, it's worth noting, there were a good number of battles for the speaker, but most of them, with the exception of one that happened in 1923, all the rest of them were before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good reason for that, which is most of those battles had to do with party politics in a state of chaos in one way or another, because in that time period, we didn't have a really secure Democrat versus Republican system. We had parties coming and going, the Liberty Party, the Know-Nothings, the Whig Party dying. And so because of that very reason, it sometimes was extremely hard, given all these little factions, to find one person that would satisfy everyone. And then on top of that, the main issue for most of those battles for the speakership was what the potential speaker thought about slavery. Right. And I think that's worth hammering down on a little bit harder, too, which is that there really was an issue. Yes, there were some sort of partisan structural things going on, but there was an issue, an issue that had two reasonably well-defined sides to it. Um, and, and that seems to be one of the ways in which the current moment differs from the 19th century. Oh, for sure. And, and that was certainly something that I was thinking about at whatever hour of the early morning, late night that I was watching what was happening on the House play out is that, you know, if you look at, for example, the the longest speakership battle in our history, which is 1856, uh, at one point, they took the three main contenders, and that lasted for um, 133 ballots for two months. Just imagine that. And at one point, they took the three top contenders and they asked them to stand up in front of the House and to state unequivocally what they thought about congressional legislation on slavery. So it's really clear that was the issue. They made these three men state what they thought, and they assumed that those statements would then enable people to vote for one or another of these people as they saw fit. That's very explicitly about an issue and, you know, in a sense, that's the kind of debate and compromise that's supposed to be going on in Congress. Right. So um, and we'll, we'll get to also some of the sort of physical confrontation stuff in just a second. But I, I love to get a little bit more historical perspective. I think we, we have kind of a narrow window of historical perspective. Like I can think back to 2007 when Democrats finally got back in control of the House and they, you know, uh, they actually wanted to kind of 
open up the floor to amendments, and and then it turned out they that didn't work out so well. But there's also a term called regular order. Regular order, you know, in a congressional context, refers to this kind of idealized schoolhouse rock way of getting stuff done. It <laughs> goes through committees, subcommittees, and when it goes to committees, there's a process, and the process is largely undisturbed. Uh, there's a way in which it exists in situations where the institution is a little bit larger than partisan interests. Uh, and, and that seems to be something that's kind of gone out the window. I don't think regular order is even almost a thing anymore. But from your perspective, I mean, all of the kind of stuff that seems like a chaotic departure from from the status quo probably has been departed from over and over again. Well, yes and no. So, you know, I would say that um, whenever there was an episode, either not so much these speakership battles, which actually, for the most part, were proceeding as they should have proceeded according to some version of regular order. But when there would be, for example, um, some violent episode on the floor, the immediate thing would happen. If you look at the congressional record, it's like as soon as everyone sits down and everyone calms down, then someone stands up and says, we need to talk about the rules. We need to figure out what to do about the rules so this doesn't happen again. So there was a commitment to the institution and to the way that it functioned in both the House and Senate that people immediately grabbed at when there was a moment of great disorder. And I think one of the things that we've seen in recent years, certainly, is, and I have to say, as a political historian, I have not thought about norms to the degree that I have been thinking about them mm-hmm. in recent years. Norms are interesting things because they're not legislated. They're just, you know, the way we do things. And what we have learned in recent years is if you decide not to do things the way we do things, there you go. (laughs) Like now we're doing it differently and people may protest, but what do they do? And is there a parliamentary tool you can use to act against it? We've been in this moment of norms being wildly violated, often on the right more than anything else, and discovering in one way or another that we don't quite know what to do in the guardrail of norms goes down. Right. And I mean, there is a little bit of blame uh, to go around on both sides, particularly about, uh, I think, these massive spending packages, which are a source of discontent on both sides and kind of a sense that regular order didn't really work there. Instead, what's happened is the party in control basically coughs up this, you know, this massive spending bill, you know, mm-hmm. often without a lot of time for scrutiny. Uh, and and it's just like, OK, well, we've got the numbers. So on three, hike. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and, and I... Once again, I mean, it sounds like, though, even looking back to the chaotic 19th century tinctured by the battle over slavery, there might have been a little bit more commitment to something other than we've got the numbers, let's go. Well, yeah, I think that that's true. And, you know, I think reading the record and watching what happened are two different things. That's one of the really interesting things about the current moment is that we could all watch when you try and get a sense of what's going on in the first half of the 19th century. All you have is the congressional record. And a lot of the bad stuff was censored out of it. So I had to dig around a lot to figure out what really happened. So what you see is the record will say something like, there was a sudden sensation in the corner. And I dig around and I discover, oh, someone pulled a knife on someone else or two guys started punching each other. And after that moment, someone would almost always stand up and say, let us talk about this institution. The institution matters. We don't see the ugliness in the record, but what we do see and what did happen was that someone stood up and and pointed to the meaning of the institution and the history of the institution and the fact that as an institution, it mattered. 
it mattered how it functioned. And I think they understood at that time, even more important, it mattered what the public thought about it. Right. So let's since you, you bring this up, um, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, one thing that every school child knows, uh, if every school child knows anything, is that on May 22nd, 1856, Representative Preston Brooks uh, came into the chamber with a cane. Uh, he was a pro-slavery guy. He went over to Senator Charles Sumner uh, and, and hit him in the head and beat him unconscious. If anybody asks you to be Charles Sumner in a tableau vivant, always say no. Uh, always say no. <laughs> uh, always say no. You want the other uh, other role. Uh, uh, and I mean, this really was this was pretty terrible uh, by by any standards. But in your book, you you st- I think you did you find like seventy instances. <laughs> yes. Of some kind? I mean, talk a little bit more about yes. that. Sure. Well, so between roughly eighteen thirty and eighteen sixty, um, I ultimately uncovered about seventy physically violent incidents. Most of them, actually, most of them on the floor of the House, some in the Senate, some within the Capitol, and then a handful of them on the street or for some reason in the Willard Hotel, which seemed to be Congressional Fight Central if you weren't in the Capitol. But one way or another, that's a lot of violence. And as I said a moment ago, much of it isn't in the record. You have to dig around and find it. But what you find, and this is what I write about in my book, is that Southerners specifically knew that they had something of an advantage over Northerners because Northerners at this period were very much dueling as a practice was frowned on in the North. A Northerner couldn't engage in that practice without kind of surrendering his political career. And Southerners knew this. So they bullied Northerners either with threats or things that sounded like they were going to lead to a dual challenge. And you only have to do that a few times to convince a good number of Northerners that it's better not to get up and make trouble given that that's looming out there. And so what you find is a lot of these confrontations in one way or another, they were started by Southerners who were trying to silence or intimidate Northerners on things concerning slavery. So ominously, particularly given everything that you've just said, um, the incoming Republican majority in the House of Representatives last week before all this McCarthy stuff even got going, they re- uh, they removed the so-called magnetometers, the, the metal detectors outside the chamber floor uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and um, one thing about the historical period that you're looking at and talking about like it was pretty commonplace for people to walk around armed, right? I mean, that, that that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to get through the mags if they had them, right? No, people. A lot of people had guns. A lot of actually mostly Southerners, but still, um, a lot of people had guns. They had knives. Here's an interesting factoid, though. So at one point, someone stepped forward and said, "You know what? Maybe this would be a calmer place, the House of Representatives, if we all left our guns in." The, the coat room. You know, what if we don't bring our guns into the house and leave them here? Guess who it is who sec- suggested that? Preston uh, Brooks, woo. the person who caned Charles Sumner. Yeah. So he proved you really don't need a gun right. <laughs> to do damage, right? But yeah, so a lot of people would not have gotten through yeah. those detectors. He didn't want to bring a cane to a knife fight, basically. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> there is a thing in your book where, there I forget what it is, but there's like some guy who says, we got to go back there, and it might come down to knives, you know, on uh, on the floor. I mean, they're like just talking about that, like that would be a oh, thing yeah. that they could possibly. No, do. absolutely. Although, again, what you might get sometimes is someone hinting about that, yeah. and obviously they said it blatantly on the floor, and then someone else says, "We don't talk about guns here, do we?" Oh no, we never do. Which is part of the joy of 
trying to uncover this history. Right. So that's all to help everybody understand in the moment. I guess I should have said this when Representative Mike Rogers kind of lunged at Representative Matt Gates uh, and and had to be restrained in a kind of undignified looking way. Um, and I mean, I guess this sort of circles back to the idea. Uh, I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I had you on and didn't have you talk a little bit about, about the importance of studying history. I mean, if we're ahistorical, uh, which I think an awful lot of people are at this point, everything looks completely new all the time, and there's not a lot of wisdom or pattern-seeking that you can impose on it. Right. And so I think I think that idea goes in two directions. So on the one hand, in this case, uh, and whether it's involving the Rogers gets a moment uh, or the larger moment that we're in, you can look back and you can look at moments in which party fractures cause this kind of trouble. You can look at how past incidents largely had a policy at their center, whereas now we don't so much, so that now we're really seeing more of a power struggle more than anything else. So history can give us context for what we're seeing right now. But I think another way in which history really helps us frame the present better is, you know, when I study people engaging in this behavior leading up to the Civil War, the most important thing that I have to bear in mind is they didn't know a civil war was coming. They were in the moment and they were doing what they were doing, not knowing what was ahead of them. And, you know, in this moment that we're in, we're watching all of this. And I, it's a good number of people in the conversations I've had in the last few days are either saying, well, they've really made themselves look like clowns. And so now it's all going to be fine. Or, oh, you know, it's all going to go downhill from this moment. The fact of the matter is we don't know what comes next for better and worse. And I think it's so important in this moment to be aware of the fact that things are so contingent right now. This whole period that we're living through is this period of extreme contingency where things can get really bad or potentially good in a very short amount of time. So I suppose as a historian, what I would urge would be for people to sit up and watch what's happening. And if there's a way to act in this moment to push things towards the good and away toward from the bad, we have to be alert to what's going on and not take anything for granted. Um, I think it's easy to take things for granted, particularly if you're not thinking in the realm of history. This is really not a moment to do that. Right. When you put it that whole way, the my internal elevator dropped about three floors in a second. You know, that kind of <laughs> whole idea of people not knowing that, say, an American Civil War is about to break out um, <laughs> and that we're basically in the same position of really not knowing. But I guess it also, when you say push things towards the good than rather than the bad, that also entails knowing, you know, knowing the difference between the two yes. uh, and, and being able to organize people behind one of the better of the options. And, and you know, it, it seemed over the weekend, this will be the last thing we talk about, I guess, it seemed over the weekend, you know, there was maybe one of the ways out of this was for moderate Republicans to work with Democrats, which is absolutely how Aaron Sorkin would have written it in any West Wing episode. But <laughs> it's, it's really not what they did, right? That was sort of a maybe a good way out of this. Well, that's a that's a great point, because Congress is was created and is intended to be an institution that is grounded on debate and compromise. And that means there have to be competing parties, people who disagree, engaged in dialogue, working in some way together, even if they hate each other, but working towards something that can move towards a solution. That's one of the interesting things about the moment that we're in. It, just as you said, what, what that did not happen we didn't see a lot of compromise actually in any way at all. 
And that's a thing, again, that has to do with what Congress is and how it's supposed to function. Uh, and again, that's going to be something that really shapes how Congress is going to function in the next two years. All right. We've been talking to Joanne Freeman, class of 1954 professor of history and American studies at Yale University, the co-host of the American History and Politics podcast, Now and Then. Her most recent book is The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War. New edition probably coming out in, you know, six months or so uh, as, <laughs> as we add more violence. Hopefully not. Hopefully we'll Hopefully go not. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thanks for, so much for being with us once again. Uh, we'll take a little break here. We'll come back. You know, if there was a winner in all this, it might have been C-SPAN. We'll, we'll talk. And we are back. Time to say some thank yous. Cat Pastors, our technical producer, been a little bit more chipper than the last time I saw her. That's always good. Uh, we, we're happy about that. And our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this particular episode. It's something we haven't been doing as much lately, which is, you know, on with a kind of short window responding uh, very specifically to the news. Uh, so it's, it feels good to be doing that again. So, yes, I said going into the break, if there was a winner— Maybe that's the right word. <laughs> there was uh, anybody who wound up uh, reminding us of their indispensability. Let's put it that way. Uh, it might have been C-SPAN. And joining us right now is Ben O'Connell, Director of Editorial Operations for C-SPAN, to talk a little bit about that. Welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate you inviting me to be on. So first of all, it's a it, C-SPAN looked different, right, uh, from what we're used to watching C-SPAN. Uh, the cameras were pointed in, in, in other directions. Explain why, why that was. How, why could C-SPAN do things maybe a little bit differently? We could do things differently because we actually had cameras in the chamber. I don't think that most people realize that on a normal legislative day in the House of Representatives, C-SPAN has exactly zero cameras in the chamber of the House of Representatives. We take a uh, feed, it's a government-operated video feed that's available to all media outlets and put that on our air for normal day-to-day -day sessions. There are rare exceptions, a uh, State of the Union address or a joint meeting, like when President Zelensky was in D.C. a couple weeks ago. And every two years, the Speaker's election, where the House does allow independent media cameras into the chamber to shoot it however we wish. Uh, and for the Speaker elections, it's, it's typically C-SPAN cameras. So a lot of people are listening to you say this and uh, saying, well, wait a minute, he's saying like a government feed or something? Isn't C-SPAN the government? This is a common misconception, right? This is a very common misconception. If if, if this uh, last, if these last few days do anything, I, I hope that it results in fewer of my own family members. Now, granted, I have an enormous family uh, coming up to me and 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 talking to me as if i work for the government why does the why why do you guys uh do x or y shouldn't our taxpayer dollars get you access to whatever it might be c-span is in 
entirely an independent media organization. We're a nonprofit funded by cable and satellite television companies that put us on their air. Hear that, Uncle Malachi O'Connell? Get that straight by the next holiday. That's right. Um, So um, it was striking, though, I mean, just in terms of conveying excitement. I mean, it really, first of all, suddenly C-SPAN was Game of Thrones, right? I mean, people just couldn't stop watching it. uh, And you guys were able to sort of really get out there and show us things that we typically don't see. Um, and, And my sense is this is something that maybe on any given day you'd rather be doing anyway. Yeah. So that government operated feed, they operate under very strict guidelines. They're only allowed to show wide shots of the chamber and then the person who is speaking. They are not allowed to show reaction shots. They're not allowed to show people milling in the aisles. They're not allowed to show the scrums of lawmakers at the back of the chamber negotiating with one another. Uh, So when we were allowed into the chamber, we decided we're going to show all of that. Uh, and, And we would love to be able to do that when there's a major piece of legislation on the floor that everyone's talking about. Right. It, it Was the fact that rules hadn't been adopted, did this help you in some way? Was the fact that we, they were in kind of a ruleless limbo? No, actually, that's a, a common misconception. So the House rules package that they have not yet adopted doesn't actually have anything to do with the rules that allow or don't allow cameras into the chamber at any given point in time. There's a whole separate set of rules dealing with how electronic media, where electronic media are able to have cameras and under what circumstances. So it it was the speaker's office, in this case, the previous speaker, Nancy Pelosi's office, that uh, allowed us to put cameras in the chamber for this speaker's election which again, traditionally, they've done every two years in my entire career with C-SPAN, which is almost 22 years, uh, it's been C-SPAN cameras. So um, when this was happening in this particular chaotic moment, were the members of Congress all kind of cool about the fact that you had people kind of roaming around, pointing lenses at things, or were there people saying, get the heck out of here? I have received nothing but good feedback uh, from members of Congress. Well, that makes it sound like I'm getting texts from members. I mean to say I have heard only good things uh, from public comments by members of Congress. I I have yet to hear uh, from either side of the aisle people wishing that we hadn't been there. I mean, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Chip Roy who ideologically couldn't be further apart, both grateful that our cameras were there and capturing it the way that we were. There was, on the other hand, uh, I think there were at times, what it reminded me of, if you watch baseball, there's always a moment where a runner gets to first base and he and the first baseman start talking and they're talking between pitchers and sometimes they're laughing even though they're from different teams and uh, and you can think, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's really hard to find out from baseball players. They almost don't want to tell you. And, and there was that sense too. It was actually part of the excitement, the fact that you could maybe look at Gosar and AOC who have plenty of reasons 
never go anywhere near each other. Uh, and there they are talking. It's like, what are they talking about? I mean, you, there must have been a lot of people just saying, can you give us audio too, please, Ben? Sure. Sure. Yeah, that would have been great, right? And instead, we uh, have to look at the bad lip reading Twitter account to to uh, to, to get someone's <laughs> terrible guess as to what was being said. Um, yeah, that would have been great. But at the same time, just getting the pictures was uh, so much more information for Americans and for voters than they would typically get from uh, from what they see on the House floor. Right. Um, by the way, I want to just uh, pause and endorse the bad lip reading Twitter account uh, for lots of different reasons, including this one. And for people who don't know what they do is they they kind of superimpose uh, um, sort of nonsensical or non sequitur kinds of things that are they're based on what it looks like the people are saying in these lip reading situations. And I just found out over the weekend that the guy who started it, uh, his mother actually had gone completely deaf, I think, when she was 40 or something and really depended oh, really? on you know, She depended on lip reading, but occasionally she would get it really wrong in a way that was very funny within the family. Uh, and that's sort of where the whole idea came from. But it's, it, it is an awful lot of fun. You know, I guess the last thing we'll have time to talk about, though, there's a way in which if we want civic engagement, you know, that what we saw over the weekend, no matter how chaotic and occasionally frightening it might have been, that there's a way in which C-SPAN's presence made us engage more and and pumped what was going to be a big story even bigger. Um, Maybe you could say a, a little bit about how you see that. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, this was going to be a story no matter what, right? I mean, you have, for the first time in 100 years, a potential speaker of the House election going more than a speaker of the House election going for more than one round of votes. This was going to be a big. That said, our cameras being in there, I think, brought it to a whole new level. Uh, and, and I really think a lot of credit goes to our field crews the people who are actually manning the cameras and our directors who are on Capitol Hill every single day when Congress is in session, they're in the hearing rooms, they are in the uh, hallways, they're in the briefing rooms. They know these members, they know the stories, they knew who to follow, and they just did an extraordinary job. Yeah, no, it it was terrific. Uh, I mean, not everything that happened was terrific, but the coverage was terrific. Ben O'Connell is C-SPAN's Director uh, of Editorial Operations. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me on. And I also wanted to say once again, you know, we we may go back to doing this a little bit. I mean, uh, at various times during our more than 13-year history, we've been a little bit more focused on breaking news. It was, I think, Lily Tyson and I both had kind of fun getting this one together, although you kind of never know, you know, what's going to happen until the last minute. Let's go.